have a uh, dilemma on our hands this morning. I, I don't know what is going on with that clock on the back wall. Are we, are we good to go now, Ryan? Are we finally? Okay. Um, it's, been, it's been on and off all morning, and, and uh, that's dangerous for a preacher when he doesn't know what the clock is saying. Uh, Ryan said about every five minutes he's going to hold a sign up and saying, wrap it up. It's time to wrap it up. And uh, so I'm just going to ignore what is going on up in the crow's nest. So... Um, as we normally do, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, just joking. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, again, thank you for your prayers and um, uh, your thoughts. And I know uh, many of you are throwing your prayers our way, and, and uh, we need them. We need your prayers, but God is faithful. And uh, if we didn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ to hold on to in times like this, we know, we know where Murd is. Wouldn't want her to come back to this. She's dancing with the angels now, and um, no doubt about that. And um, there's a song I told uh, Chuck not long ago. One of my favorite singers is uh, Wayne Watson, a contemporary Christian singer from a number of years ago. And uh, he writes a song that talks about the difficulty in times like this and when we experience loss and pain and um, we're the ones that stay and remain and have to carry the load and have to cry the tears. But he also talks about, but now it's our turn to carry on. It's our turn to carry on. While we grieve, um, we still have a job to be done. Our race is yet to be won. So um, we are doing that to the best of our ability. Okay. Um, today I am going to um, speak on a topic that I've never really spoken on before. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, um, a topic that I know is near and dear to the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. Um, so those of you who uh, kind of grew up in Church of God doctrine, uh, this, this series uh, may be of interest to you. And it's a topic that God has been speaking to me about for a number of months now. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to go into uh, this. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about kingdoms. Kingdoms. The definition of a kingdom is a country or a state or a territory that is ruled by a king or a queen. I recently did some research on some of the ancient kingdoms of the world. Did I just hear a buzz? Was that just me? No. Um, yeah, we're okay. All right. Um, just making sure I'm not hearing things. <laughs> okay. Brian's back there. Okay. His face is turning red. Bless his heart. All right. Okay. Um, did some research on kingdoms and some of the ancient kingdoms of the world. In Africa, there were 59 major kingdoms, and as of which some of them would be the Egyptian kingdom that goes back 3,100 years ago. The Egyptian, the Egyptian kingdom that had the pharaohs and, and um, the pyramids and the famous legacy that they have. In Asia, there are 119 ancient kingdoms. The land of Ur, where Abraham came from, is included in one of those famous Asian kingdoms. It goes back to 2500 B.C. Europe contains about 95 famous kingdoms, uh, one of which is the famous Roman uh, kingdom that existed years ago. But there's one thing that, that um, I noticed with all of the kingdoms that I researched. 
All of the earthly kingdoms have one thing in common. None of them but a handful still exist. They all have a beginning date and an ending date. And the ones that still exist are ones that are just fairly new or they've been, they're, they're so small in territory that no one has even bothered trying to conquer them. But most of your kingdoms have a beginning and an ending date. You may be saying this morning, Pastor Brock, I don't get it. What, what do you, what's up all the discussion with kingdoms? We live in America. We're not a kingdom. We're a democracy, right? I don't understand what all the fuss is about a kingdom. Well, the Bible refers, whether you realize it or not, the Bible refers to the term kingdom or kingdoms about 670 times. So there must be something significant going on here. Jesus himself referred to the kingdom many times, did he not? He did. Here are some examples of some ways that Jesus, these are red letters, Jesus referred to the kingdom. In those days, John the Baptist, actually this is not red letter, but in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We also see in chapter 4, and Jesus went out about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Next in chapter 6. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. We're also told in Matthew 19.14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, which there, as I said, there are 670 references to the kingdom, but what I'm basing the message on, so to speak, would be Matthew 6, where Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm titling this series, I guess you could say, Thy Kingdom Come. Thy Kingdom Come. I'm not sure if you've really given this much thought, but this kingdom, which the Bible refers to as the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has important eternal ramifications for you and I, for believers in Jesus Christ. So where are we going to go with all of this? Over the next few weeks, Brian asked me before earlier, how long is this going to go? You know me. I have no idea. So we're just going to go with this and just preach until God says that's good. But what are we going to talk about over the next few weeks? I want to discuss what the Bible means when it speaks of the kingdom. Is this kingdom something we can experience and live in? And if so, how? When did this kingdom begin? What is its nature, its time, its scope, its place in our world? Will this kingdom ever end? And perhaps most importantly, how should this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, impact our lives? Now, I'm just going to tell you up front here, today, the 5th of March, Today's sermon is not going to be so much of a sermon. It's going to maybe feel more like a teaching. 
um, I feel it's vitally important that I lay some groundwork. I kind of give you some nuts and bolts. I, I lay down a foundation so that we can go where I really want to go in the coming weeks. Okay? So just bear with me today. We're going to lay some groundwork, some foundations, so we can uh, be better informed for the future. So today, some of the things that we're going to talk about is the kingdom that existed in Israel. Then we're going to talk about how this kingdom transfers over to the message of the Messiah. And then we're just going to touch a little bit today on the kingdom and eschatology. And how the kingdom fits into end times study. So, are you ready? (laughs) Mandy, we're done. Wherever she went, I don't know. We're done. All right. I know Dave's ready. All right. Maybe this is, these, there's going to be things that we're going to talk about today in the coming weeks that some of you have never heard about. Stay with me. I believe it's going to be eye-opening and hopefully soul-opening for you. Approximately 4,100 years ago, God promised a man named Abraham that he, through his seed, would create a great nation a people that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous and countless as the sand on the seashore. Out of Abraham's faithfulness, the nation of Israel was born, and this tiny little nation became a kingdom, a kingdom here on earth. We know that one of Abraham's descendants, a man named Joseph, became an influential figure in one of the ancient kingdoms we've talked about, the kingdom of Egypt. He became a very influential leader in the kingdom of Egypt and in Jewish history. Some 400 years later, after Israel's population had grown to number the sands of the sea to over 2 million people in Egypt, the fame of these people and their God spread as their God sent multiple plagues upon the land of Egypt. You know the story. In order for Pharaoh to let his people go. Then, of course, there is the Red Sea story. How can we forget that? And then the receiving of the Ten Commandments. This is all just a quick history of the land of Israel. After Joshua, the... uh, successor to Moses, under Joshua, the Israelites brought down the walls of Jericho simply by marching around the walls. They didn't touch anything. They had no military battle, no military strategy. All they were told to do was march. And this nation would become a powerful kingdom in the Middle East. Then a boy named David rising to to the position of king around the year 1000 B.C. took place. Under King David and his son King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel reached its zenith in terms of strength and power. Listen, how did they do this? Their fame spread. the, The word of their God spread. They were able to win battles they had no business winning. And their influence stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the Arabian Desert. From the Red Sea to the Euphrates River. And it was under King Solomon that the famous temple 
was built. So great was the kingdom of Israel. Just follow me with all of this. So great was the kingdom of Israel that in 1 Kings chapter 10, it tells us that the queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon. She heard about his incredible wisdom. She heard about the incredible um, power and the wealth and the possessions of Israel, and she just had to come and see it for herself. She wanted to test King Solomon just to see if indeed he was as wise as everyone said he was. She gave him, the scripture tells us, she gave him every kind of question she could think of, to which he answered truthfully and accordingly. No question was too difficult for him. And after this Q&A session, and after she saw all that there was to see in this great kingdom of Israel, she said this, quote, Everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I told, what I was told. You see, this little country of Israel was indeed a powerful kingdom in its heyday. However, after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split, split in two became divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the, because the people rebelled against God and His ways. Several kings came and several kings went, suffering defeat after defeat at the hands of nations like Babylon and Assyria. This development, this division, this split is crucial in what I'm trying to say this morning because from that moment on, approximately 2,700 years ago until now, the kingdom of Israel in its glory ceased to exist. Don't lose sight of this as we continue. So it's with this backdrop this mighty little nation became an incredible kingdom, but because they forsook God and His ways, they rebelled against God and His ways. They split. They were torn in two. And they never became what they once were. Sounds like America in a way, doesn't it? May we take heed of this. May we take heed of this. So this is the backdrop. The backdrop to which a Jewish concept came into being called the Messiah. This term, the Messiah, is used a lot in churches, isn't it? Maybe you've grown up hearing a lot about the Messiah. What exactly is the Messiah? How would you answer that? The concept of a Messiah comes from multiple Old Testament prophecies that speak of a great prophet that would descend from the tribe of Judah. And he would sit on King David's throne. That is the basic concept of the Messiah. At some point in the history, in the future, after King David, this Messiah would come and rule and reign in the place of King David. The prophecies indicate that sometime after King David, this prophet would rise up and defeat all the enemies of Israel. 
restoring the kingdom of Israel and returning the Jewish people to their beloved city of Jerusalem. You see, when Babylon conquered them and when Assyria conquered them, they took them away into captivity. There was a return to Jerusalem, but it wasn't anywhere what it used to be. And so the Messiah is supposed to come back and conquer all the enemies and bring the Jews back to Jerusalem and return them to the glory days of kings David and Solomon. Folks, that is really basically what is behind the tug of war that is taking place today over the Middle East. I don't know if you realize that or not. Over in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the, um, the Muslims conquered Israel and they took over and they set up shop there in the, the Dome of the Rock where is their, one of their most holiest places for Islam. And for years, the, the Jews and the Muslims have been arguing, fighting, and waging war over that spot. You see, the Jews want that spot again. That's the spot where they had animal sacrifices. That's where the glory of God came down in the Old Testament days. That's where the Shekinah glory of God took place. And they want that spot back to this day so they can rebuild the temple, so they can reinstitute the animal sacrifices. And many of them, there are still some that believe today that when the Messiah comes, he's going to destroy all the Muslims, and he's going to once again set up shop there in Jerusalem. So whenever you look at the news and whenever you read all that's going on in Jerusalem, that is a lot of what is taking place. The tug of war that took place thousands of years ago is still going on today. Interesting. Assyria conquered Israel in 722 B.C. Israel suffered its first significant loss when the Assyrians defeated them and took them captive. So, For more than 700 years at that time, after that 700 years, the kingdom of Israel was no more. But buried in the rubble of Israel's discouragement was the hope that one day the Messiah would come and make all things right. 722 years later enters this man into the world. Jesus Christ. Actually, it was just Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is another word referring to the Messiah. At this time in history, Rome was the big empire, was the big kingdom that was ruling. But here enters this man named Jesus. Many of us know who this man is because Nazareth is not far from Jerusalem and this is Joseph's son. But all of a sudden this man is doing things that no one has ever seen before. He's making the blind see and causing the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak again. Uh, he's, calling, uh, he's causing the lame to get up and leap and walk. And he's making the lepers clean again. And for crying out loud, he's even raising people from the dead. He's confounding the religious leaders. He's putting them in their place. No one has been able to do that before. They keep asking him questions And he keeps answering them and puts them in this place. Oh, and on top of all that, it turns out that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. The Jewish people believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was 
their Messiah. He was their Redeemer and He was their Deliverer. I believe that in the day that Jesus lived, the people who were around Him, they believed that He was going to restore Jerusalem, restore Israel to the glory days of the past. I want to read a couple of passages here. We can see this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is after Jesus had the feeding of the 5,000. He just read, he just fed the 5,000. That's another incredible feat that he did. In John chapter 6, starting with verse 14, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. We see that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the triumphant, the triumphant entry, we're on the Passover, we're soon getting to that time of year. We'll be entering to our, we've entered into the Easter season. Here comes Jesus riding on a donkey, and in and of itself is a messianic prophecy being fulfilled by Zacharias. So here comes Jesus riding on a donkey, and those who love him adore him, saying, Wow, he's fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. He has got to be the Messiah. And I can just hear the religious leaders. They were sneering. They were angry. They were gnashing their teeth. They were thinking, Who does this man think he is? He knows what the prophecy says. He's declaring himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, but we'll show him. So a lot of controversy, a lot of indignation, a lot of anger was taking place at this time. But we all know a a popular saying that uh, um, Palm Sunday, as Jesus came in, they were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now the word Hosanna means one who saves. One who saves. So as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they were saying, Hosanna. They were declaring, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah. You are going to be the one to save us. I was thinking of that whenever we were singing our song this morning. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We know that he does save, but that day they thought that he was going to save them. Get them from underneath the rule and reign of Rome and all the emperors and all the pilots. On the day of ascension, this is even after Jesus died and rose again from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, 40 days after Jesus had walked with them, a risen Savior had walked with them, having spent all that time, the disciples still asked him this question in Acts 1.6. They said, therefore, when they had come together... They asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And I want to say to myself, don't you get it? You still don't get it. So there is no question, church, that those in that day thought that Jesus truly was the Messiah. And they expected him to restore Israel to its glory days. But my question is this, is this really what Jesus came to do? Did he really come 2,000 some years ago to conquer Rome and to set up 
the kingdom for Israel. When Jesus died on that Friday, the hopes and the dreams of all Israel were gone. Their Messiah, their Christ, was gone. All their dreams died as well. And they saw this Jesus as just a fake and a fraud. But we know that three days later what happened, and we know that Jesus isn't a fraud. He isn't a fake. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is our risen Lord and Savior. But what about this kingdom that Jesus so often talked about? Let me remind you, Jesus is the one who talked about the kingdom often. And here's a key point. There are many within Christendom today who believe when Jesus was here, he attempted to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. He talked about it, so that's what he must have been trying to do. But the Jews and the religious leaders thwarted his efforts. But they say the next time he comes... At his second advent, he will come as a victorious warrior and will set up a literal kingdom here on earth. That is a prevalent theme that is taking place with this Christianity today. But again, I ask the question, is this true? Keep in mind that our topic is, Thy Kingdom Come. And we need to investigate what this kingdom really is and what it is not. One way we can look at this is to look at the various viewpoints of his second coming. So, getting ready to go to the tail end of this message again. I told you it's more of a teaching. I'm laying a foundation for the coming weeks. But we know that the kingdom of Israel was mighty. But it fell. It collapsed. And through the hopes and dreams and the prophecies of a Messiah, they wanted their Messiah to come set up an earthly kingdom again. Since the Jews thwarted him, which I don't believe is true, but they say since the Jews thwarted that, surely he's going to come back again at his second coming. When he splits the eastern skies, he's going to come back again and set up that kingdom. See, when it comes to the kingdom and Christ's second coming, there is one word that has been introduced into the topic, and that one word is the millennium. One word. You may want to get a copy of this tape. I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but it's called millennium. And what that means is a thousand years. It's a thousand years. What do I mean by all of that? This term, this concept, comes from Revelation 20, chapter 20, verse 6, where it says this. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. From then, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him a thousand years. Folks, it's from that verse that many schools of thought pertain to Christ's second coming comes from. They will interject this, this concept of a millennium. Its basic belief teaches this, that when Jesus returns, he will set up a literal kingdom here on earth. And he will reign over it for a thousand years, for a millennium. Now, if I had time, I would expound on the roots of this teaching. 
But I can tell you for a fact that this premise, this teaching, did not come from Jesus. Nor did it come from the disciples in the early church. As a matter of fact, there are historical writings that says those in the day, that this concept existed at the time of Jesus, but it didn't start with Jesus. There are historical writings that state that the Apostle John, John on the Isle of Patmos, John who we see as the one Jesus loved, John condemned those who taught this teaching, who were spreading this false truth. So in just a few minutes and as briefly as I can before we close today. How does all of this play out in eschatology? How does all this play out in end times? And it's interesting that um, I'm starting the series uh, today and this Wednesday we're starting starting to talk about end time theology. So hopefully that's piqued your interest. Love to have you come join us on Wednesday. Um, So how does all this play into end times eschatology? One of the leading doctrines today on Christ's return incorporates this philosophy. It's called premillennialism. Premillennialism. This is where all of your left-behind novels and your movies come from. We talked about this not too long ago. This teaching believes that Jesus will indeed set up a literal earthly kingdom, but before he does, a number of events will have to take place. Um, Some of you may have been taught this. Uh, Some of you may have family and friends that that adhere to this. Uh, The first thing that they believe that is going to happen is what's on the screen there. I found a picture of the rapture, the secret snatching away of the church. So what they believe the next great prophetic event that will take place is the rapture. A secret, you won't even know it, you're going to blink, they they think that um, in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to blink and we're going to be gone. The saints are going to be gone. And everybody who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will remain here. And for the next three and a half years, they will have good years. They will have profitable years. They will have bountiful years. But then the next three and a half years will be years of tribulation, time when they think the Antichrist will come, set up shop, and will be three and a half years of terrible tribulation. At the end of the three and a half years, Jesus is going to come back officially for the second time. When he does, he will enter into what is the battle of Armageddon. This is what the philosophy teaches. He will come back and with all of his angelic warriors and all the saints, they will come back and they will engage in a battle of epic proportions in the valley of Armageddon, which is over in the Middle East. I've also heard people describe that the, um, the, the death and the destruction will be so horrible that the blood will come up to the horse's bridle. Some of you may have heard of that, that this is what the battle of Armageddon is going to be. But in the end, Jesus is finally going to be victorious and he's going to win. When that's all said and done, then he will set up his literal earthly kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. Whenever they establish the kingdom, then they're going to reestablish 
the animal sacrifices in Jerusalem and the temple will be restored. That's why when, when there's activity going on over in Jerusalem, I've heard that uh, they're, they're, they're getting the red heifer ready. Uh, the red heifer was used back in the days of animal sacrifice. So whenever you hear these things, people are getting excited. They're thinking Christ is about ready to return because we're going to reinstitute animal sacrifices again. But the question again is, is this really what will happen? Now listen, I don't pronounce judgment on those who, ad- who, have, who adhere to that. I know today there are brothers and sisters on their way to heaven when Christ comes back. They love him. They've been forgiven. They're, they're washed in the blood of, blood of the Lamb. But there are some holes in this theory. And let me name just a few. The passages that are used, and we just talked about Revelation 26, where it talks about the thousand years. The passages that are used to support this teaching do not really hold up under proper biblical interpretation. What do I mean? Um, a literal meaning is placed on passages in books of the Bible where symbolism should be used. Dave, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? So symbolic meaning is, is what is needed in books like Revelation. For example, when the Bible uses the term a thousand, which is what we're talking about this morning, when the Bible uses terms like a thousand, it is often used symbolically to describe that which can't be described. An an indefinite quantity, an infinite number of something. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In 2 Peter 3.8 it says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is but a day. We know this to be just symbolic of God's infinite existence. In Psalm 50 Verse 10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and a cattle on a thousand hills is the Lord's as well. So if we take that, and we take the approach that is taken in premillennialism, is this saying that there are literally 1,000 hills on the earth, and they all have have cows grazing on them, and God owns them all? That's not what that is trying to get across. What it's trying to get across is that it's a symbolic way of describing the infinite, the innumerable resources of our God. But to those who adhere to premillennial doctrine, they set aside this proper practice of interpretation and they make Revelation 20 to mean that when Jesus returns, he will set up his kingdom here on earth and it will be a literal thousand years. Also, advocates of this teaching seem to create more truth than what is in the Bible. As I talked about, they create an entire doctrine out of the secret rapture. There is no biblical support for the secret rapture. I used to adhere to that. I used to believe that. Years ago I came from that. So if you're curious about that topic, come on Wednesday. We're going to talk about that. We're going to dig into the scriptures that are used with that. They take too much liberty with that. Reinstitution of animal sacrifices, which folks, why on earth is that that even necessary? When Jesus came, he came to destroy all of that. 
right? He came to destroy all the animal sacrifices, and there was only one time that, that it needed to happen when Jesus hung on the cross, and it was sufficient from there on out. Praise the Lord. Now, some of you may be asking, Pastor Brock, why is all this important? Again, we don't split fellowship with those who believe this way, but in addition to the problems that we just cited, there is one major flaw that is taught with this philosophy that makes it very dangerous. You see, within this teaching, they believe that those who are not saved after the rapture will remain and they will have a second chance. That is a popular teaching within this doctrine. Those who remain will have a second chance to get right with God. Church, there is no biblical foundation for that teaching whatsoever. And God help us. And I just believe that it is a lie from the, from the pit of Satan. Anything that Satan can do to keep you and I, or to keep mankind from making that decision, he will do. So, I am concluding. So what does the church of God believe? What is our stance of end times eschatology? That's a week upon week upon week study. But let me just tell you this. Our stance falls more in line with this. Amillennialism. Amillennialism, which really stands for no thousand years. We do not believe that there will be a literal earthly kingdom for a thousand years. But what we do believe is that any and all biblical references to a thousand years are true, but they hold a symbolic message. And they refer to the spiritual work of Jesus that is wrought in the heart by faith in Jesus Christ. And this belief is what the early church embraced. Kingdoms, thy kingdom come. Mandy, come on up. Singers, if you want to come too, we're just going to end in a simple chorus. I'm thinking, how do I end this message? Hopefully I didn't give you too much. Let me conclude by emphasizing a few things. When Jesus came, folks, for the first time, we celebrate his first Advent at Christmas time. When he came for the first time, he indeed was coming for a kingdom. He spoke about it often. But the question is, did he come to restore the ancient kingdom of Israel back to its glory days? Or, when he comes again, will he set up a literal earthly kingdom that will last for a thousand years? Or, perhaps, is there another meaning behind the word kingdom of heaven? Kingdom of God. I wish it were next Sunday. I'm ready to dig into what the kingdom of God is. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Next week we'll address what it actually, actually is. Thy kingdom come. We know that Jesus is indeed a king. He is our risen king. So this morning we want to sing a song declaring that. Glorify thy name. Would you bow your heads please and let's pray. Father God, we covered a lot of territory today. Lord, I worked and I worked and I studied and I researched this week and I believe you helped me, God. And Lord, 
obviously we don't want to get hung up on things that can be argumentative. That's, that's not what we're here for. But Lord, we want to know the truth. And Jesus, you spoke about the kingdom often. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And so God, I just pray that you would help us in the coming days as we open our hearts and our minds and um, that you would reveal truth to us. Lord, that we would see things that perhaps we've never seen before. And God, I believe, as I said at the outset of this message, I believe this message has eternal ramifications for us. Lord, I believe it will help all of us to enhance our relationship with you. It will help us to know more about this kingdom. Lord, this morning, we just want to glorify you. We want to praise you for you indeed are a king. You indeed have your kingdom. You are king of kings and Lord of lords. And you are reigning forever and ever and ever. And Lord, we thank you for the message. We thank you for the time that we can spend here together. We love you. Lord, may we ponder on these things. Speak to us. Speak truth to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?